Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Ali H. Al-Hori, an applied linguist from Saudi Arabia and one of our favorite people in the world. Dr. Ali Al-Hori, thank you so much for coming back, back on Lost in Citations. You are welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's always great to follow you on social media, and it's a great opportunity to catch up with you now. It's really an open-door policy. Uh, we always get a lot of great feedback when you come on the show. I know you're a very busy man. You like to write four hours a day and, and so forth. Thank you. I think you mentioned that on a previous show. So thank you for taking the time to come back on Lost in Citations. Sure. I'm happy to, to do this again. Okay. So lots to talk about on the show today. Later on, we're going to be speaking about today's paper, The Fundamental Difference Hypothesis, Expanding the Conversation in Language Learning Motivation. But before we get into the paper, uh, let's catch up with you, uh, Dr. Ali Alhori. So first of all, I noticed something on Facebook. I think it was today. Of course, when people listen to this, uh, there'll be a bit of a time lag. But I am a member of IAPL, the International Association for the Psychology of Language Learning, and a lot of previous guests have been on this uh, very same podcast. And I noticed an advertisement for a Motivation SIG special interest group that you are starting with IAPL. Would you like to talk about that? Yes, um, this idea, the 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 board of IAPL asked me to organize a SIG for motivation. The name hasn't been decided yet, but it will be about motivation. And the idea is that we will organize activities regularly to connect interested people all over the world, virtually. And, you know, maybe come and meet and chat every now and then about different things. That's great. It seems like iApple keeps growing and growing. I mean, the fact that you're starting a SIG, does that mean that other SIGs are going to start popping up as well? Yes. Um, I don't know what SIGs are being proposed currently, but my understanding is that there are some SIGs in preparation currently, and one can join up to three SIGs for free. And then, according to IAPL bylaws, you need to pay five bucks for each additional uh, SIG, which will, the membership will be for two years. So that's nothing. Yeah. So if people would like information, please go to iapple.com and all the information is there. We were, we were briefly discussing before we started recording about you know, the upcoming conference, the PLL conference in June in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, Peter McIntyre's hometown. I have uh, purchased a ticket. Uh, hopefully, I'm going to be able to go. The big problem for me is returning to Japan. Uh, it's okay to leave, but it's hard to come back. So um, fingers crossed they loosen the 14-day quarantine on return. So hopefully, I'll be able to go. What about you? Yeah, hopefully, you know, you know, COVID permitting, you know, if things are okay, then, you know, hopefully we'll see each other there then. That would be in that person. would be that would be awesome. Were you at the very first PLL conference? Was it in um, Austria? No, that I think it was 2013, right? I don't know. Yeah, I think it was around that time. It was my first PhD year, and you know, I wasn't even going to conferences. On my first PhD year, I had many other things to worry about. 
What was the? I forget. I forget. You told the story in our oh, previous maybe show. fourteen. You know, I was just starting that year. What was the conference that you weren't going to go to, and then and then uh, Zoltan Dornia, you know, basically told you you have to go to it. You you were thinking about. You, you had mentioned on a previous podcast. You, you said, "Yeah, I'm kind of busy. I'm not going to go." And then Dornia said, "What? You're not going to go to this conference?" And then you you kind of went. <laughs> Yeah, it was the motivation conference that he was himself organizing at Nottingham. Okay. <laughs> so I was at the university with him and I think, oh, I'm not going to this conference. Yeah, and then he said, you know, you cannot do this. <laughs> uh, well, that's cool. Okay, so people should check out the motivation SIG at iApple. Another thing that I've noticed uh, for people that are following you on social media, um, you recently did a presentation in China. I believe it was called From Replication to Substantiation in Applied Linguistics. Uh, would you like to maybe catch the listeners up on the broad strokes of that? Yeah, it it was at Huazong University of Science and Technology. It's about a recent paper of ours with Phil Hiver, Diane Larson Freeman, and Wander Lowy. It's from replication to substantiation. And basically, the idea is uh, replication is the word used maybe too much. Sometimes your study is not a replication in any broad sense, but still called conceptual replication or approximate replication. All these, you know, the word replications comes up a lot. So we we thought that it's not really a replication. You call it replication, but it's not. It's a problem with terminology. So we proposed a different taxonomy, let's say, of research. And one one type of it is replication. It has to be, you know, to follow certain conditions to be considered a replication. Otherwise, there are other names that you can use to describe your research. I see. And there's a video of that presentation, right, on your Facebook? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can watch the lecture there. So people should definitely check that out. You mentioned a paper. Uh, you said it was uh, – who were the authors again? Um, myself, Phil Hiver, Diane Larson Freeman, and Wander Lowy from the Netherlands. Okay. So maybe I'll just give just quickly – okay, so – for people that are just listening to the show now, maybe you should go back and listen to a few episodes. Uh, the first one is uh, citation number 49, where uh, Ali came on the show to talk about um, the paper that you wrote with Phil Hiver, re-examining the role of vision. And, and then Phil Hiver came on the podcast, citation 53, and he gave the story about meeting Diane Lawson Freeman at Nottingham. Um, which was kind of a cool story. And then Ali came back on in Citation 55, where he talked about the paper that you uh, you edited with Peter McIntyre. And then also Citation 67 um, was Joe Vida, one of your co-authors, about a paper with the flipped classroom. So if you go to our website and you type in al uh that search engine should be able to lead you back to some of these episodes. And Again, when I heard that that name, Diane Lawson Freeman, I just immediately thought of Phil Hiver sitting in a bus on the way to um, what was the forest? What's the famous forest in uh, near Nottingham? Sure. Uh, what, what's the name of that forest? 
I forget. It's um it was it was it was like in a movie. Uh oh my gosh, my brain is totally <laughs> if Phil's listening, he he knows. Anyway, it's a it's a cool story, so people should go back and, and listen to that. Um Robin Hood. Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. Have you seen that movie? What's what's the forest? Do you know can you help me out, Ollie? Do you know the name of the forest? Sherwood the- Forest. Sherwood. Thank you. Sherwood Forest. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Uh the last thing that uh, if you're following Ali on social media, something, the Essex Alumni Award. Now, this sounds very interesting. Uh, sounds very prestigious. Uh, can you tell a little people a little bit about that? Yeah, it's an award that's given by the British Council for people who have graduated from British universities. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, they, they evaluate people, look at their contributions, their what they did, their research output, and beyond the research output, like, you know, I have been uh, reviewing things, serving at editorial boards, doing lots sorts of things. So they uh, nominated me for, um, for this award. I have been also been doing research on related to machine learning and artificial intelligence mm-hmm. related to um, plagiarism related to you know evaluation of different journals yeah so it has been fun and what i have been thinking about is that all this research that we are doing is in a way trying to understand the human mind if you study emotions, it's you know it's about the mind, how the mind thinks. If you study behavior, motivation, learning, you know aptitude, um, teaching, it's all about how at the in the end it goes back to how the mind works. And as you know, the human mind is one of the most complex objects in the universe, right? And, I wish you know, mine worked fact. better. Then I'd be able to name the Sherwood Forest. I'm, I'm going to be <laughs> thinking about why my mind doesn't work right for, for a couple hours after this interview. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, fun fact. The second most complex um, system in, in the body is the immune system. Hmm. And, um, you know, if you just scratch your finger on something and you start bleeding, you know, all these you know, stuff start happening, fighting bacteria and viruses and things. It's just the second most complex system. So, um, what? So, what we are doing when we study the human brain? Currently, you know, some people think that it's it's kind of primitive. Mm. We, you know, you know, give people a questionnaire or talk with somebody and then try to infer, you know, about them. Some people will use some fancy technology like fMRI and scan their brains to to learn. But some people thought, why don't we use artificial intelligence? And what what you know, machine learning basically, uh, if you go back in history, computers fundamentally are based on the logic of if then 
if the user clicks this, you give them that output. If you do this, you give them that output. If this happens, then there is a loop, and then there is this and that. Basically, this is the, the fundamental idea of the classical computer, let's say. But how the human brain works is, is not like if then. So if you have a child and you want to teach them about you know, this is a cat, for example, you don't give them if then statements like if the ear is like this, <laughs> it's a cat. If the mouth is like that, it's a dog. What you actually do you sh is you show them a picture of a cat, for example, and say cat. And that's it. And then the mind does its thing, right? Mm. Then you show them another picture of a dog and say dog and then the mind does its thing mm -hmm. so machine learning is based on this logic you feed into the algorithms pictures of dogs and say these are dogs and pictures of cats and say these are cats and then let the machine does this thing to learn the differences okay then you need you know thousands and millions of pictures just this is how you know big data mm -hmm. but then it will develop a model that can you know usually pretty accurately tell that this new picture is a cat or a dog which is impressive mm. so yeah so going back so some people started saying why don't we use this technology to understand the human brain so what they did was that they scanned people and they showed the participant, say, the letter N, for example. And the participant is just looks at this letter. And when you look at something, there is some brain activation. So they scan this participant's uh, activation. And then they ask the participant to look at, say, O, just a basic example. And then they scan this... Um, their brains, then they repeat this, get a lot of data, and then they use this algorithm that has learned the difference between the activation of the letter O and the letter N, and then show them new scans and say, can you guess whether the participant is looking at N or O? Hmm. And they can do that, okay? And then they can show them, they go one step further. They show the participants pictures of objects, like a pen, and then they scan, see the activation, and a door, for example, or a key. And then the machine learning can tell that this participant is looking now at a door or a pen or something else, which is kind of interesting. Mm. And then they went one step further, and they were able to reconstruct or draw what face the participant is looking at, hmm. which is very impressive. You know, it, it can actually read your mind. This is existing technology. It's not like, you know, sci-fi. It, you know, it will redraw the picture that you are looking at. You know, it may be a bit blurry or something, but it will do it. So it's actually reading your mind in a sense. It's, it's, or reading what you are looking at, let's say, to be more accurate. And, and so, yes, I mean, with this, if, if today we have this sort of technology, you can only imagine what will happen in 50 or 100 years.
So going back to my point, you know, if you are not jumping on this bandwagon of artificial intelligence, there is a risk that at some point your research methodology will be so primitive it will be like i don't know like you know lobotomy or something you know the future <laughs> will look at it and look at these people in their 20s you use questionnaire <laughs> laugh at you or something like this so yeah you never know i mean well, i i was reading the, i don't know i was reading about this essex award it said that you you're working on something that can predict early stages of alzheimers yes there is some research so what i did was i designed a device that applies this model into predicting what whether and the user uh could possibly be suffering from alzheimers or not wow Man, you're you're on the way to getting like a Nobel Prize if you keep going like this. <laughs> is that the goal? Yeah. So that, that so that's it. This is the story of. So um, when you when British you get Council. a Nobel Prize, will you still come back on Lost in Citations, or you'll be too good for us at that point? <laughs> let's let's wait and see. Does that mean I have to go through like your publicist at that point? Hey, I got to ask you a question. So. In a previous episode, you talked about – I think we were talking about self-efficacy and, and you said you have this app that kind of rewards you on a smiley face if you do. I think what your goal was four hours of research a day, right? Is that still the goal? Uh, it's it's uh, three hours a day. Um, oh, when three, I was okay. doing my PhD, when I had more time, it was four hours. Now uh, I aim for a minimum of three hours a day every day of the week. How do you – I, I I'm guessing you don't you don't drink alcohol, right? No. So, how do you turn your brain off at the end of the day? Because I got to imagine your brain is just thinking. You're you're working on so many projects at once. Like that's one thing. I don't drink alcohol so much. I'm trying to take a little bit of a break. But that's one thing that I use alcohol for is to say, okay, your day's finished now. It's time to stop thinking. Like it's okay for you to just say, okay, well, I've done my three hours of work, but do you find that your brain keeps on wandering and that's like, it makes it difficult for you to go to sleep? How do you, you know, stop your brain from, from thinking or, or, or do you, do you let it go? Um, well, two things. First, I usually finish by around 6 PM and that's it. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So that's like, you know, I, I, I don't go into the night working. I, that would be very unusual for, for me to do that. Maybe there is something urgent or something, or I have a meeting with like Phil and some other people and we have different time zones. So I have to have a meeting at night, my time zone. Uh, and second, I don't actually, um, um, Multitask. Yeah, I was looking for this word. I don't multitask, you know, believe it or not. I work on one project at a time. I, I find it hard to switch from task to task. You're talking about weekly? Uh, no, I, I take one project, per focus day? fully on it, 
and move to the next project only when I finish what I have to finish in that project. Oh, oh, I see. Yes. Okay. So intensive attention on one thing only. Then I, I move to the next thing. I see. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I do. I, I try to make a schedule and I do, I do it. I, I stick to the same thing per day, but sometimes I'll jump from one to the other on different days. Um, that's so what do you do in the evening to, to like, to like wind um, down? I watch television, sit with my daughters, um, have dinner and, you know, so yeah. You're, so you're able to, to make that. Cause I think that's one thing that's been a challenge for a lot of people during this COVID era is, you know, the boundary, you know, a lot of people, you know, we miss going to the office, right? You, you have the commute where you can drive and you can, okay, you get into work mode and you drive, you come back, I'm getting into home mode. But I definitely find it challenging to just switch, it's just switch off and say, okay, I'm not going to be thinking about what I need to do tomorrow or thinking about what I did today, for example. Yeah, I will. I go to work pretty much all every business day of the week. So that makes it a bit easier for me. Okay. All right. So it's, it's three hours a day, three hours a day, seven days a week. I'm i uh, I'm two hours a day, five days a week. <laughs> I got a lot to catching up to do. Um, okay. So those are the, the three things people should check out the motivation SIG, uh, for iApple, uh, from replication to substantiation and applied linguistics, the presentation, and look up um, Ali's uh, the Essex Alumni Award. Very, very cool stuff. And your website. Uh, do, what's your website? I guess they could just Google your name. Uh, right? Yeah, just my name, alialhuri.com. Nice website. Did you design that? Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. I... You you so you you can build websites too. Um, there are some easy services that, you know, use that are user friendly. You don't have to write code or anything, just drag and drop. So uh, it's, it's not that difficult. Okay. So let's jump into the paper, uh, today's paper, the fundamental difference hypothesis, expanding the conversation in language learning motivation. Uh, you publish so many different papers. I guess I want to start with this. Why? Out of the papers that you've been doing, why did you decide this one might be the best one for the podcast today? Uh, I think, well, because um, let me tell you why I we, we decided to do this study in the first place, and this will answer your question. Sure. So before I did my PhD, well, when I, you know, after I finished my MA and when I started my PhD, there was a seven-year gap. Mm. Uh, so during this time, I was reading the literature here and there. It was a very helpful. Actually, to, I found in retrospect, I think this time lag was useful for me because when I started my PhD, I wasn't like a fresh MA graduate. I had a lot of, you know, in my bag during these years. So that, that was very helpful. So I, I was reading the literature here and there. And one day I came across a paper by somebody called Blave Roman, uh, published in 1990. Mm. And it was an old scanned paper that I found somewhere, somewhere online. 
And so I said, and the title of that paper was The Fundamental Difference Hypothesis. Hmm. So I said, oh, what's this strange name? Let me read this paper. So I read that paper, and it was about the hypothesis that there is a fundamental difference between learning your first language in childhood and learning your second language in adulthood. Mm-hmm. And that explains why usually it's hard to be as successful in second languages in adulthood as in first languages in childhood. Mm-hmm. So they, the argument was that there is some language-specific mechanism in the brain that children use, but adults use more general problem-solving um, skills to learn the language. So there is a fundamental difference between these two. So it was a paper that I read. Uh, it was a fun paper, and but nothing to do with my own research, my interest into motivation. So At that time, did you agree? Yeah. With that um, hypothesis? Uh, it, was, uh, it, it was an interesting hypothesis. I didn't really have an opinion because it wasn't my my research area anyway. So hmm. it was... I, I soon forgot about it. Okay. And turned my attention to reading motivation literature. So I started reading Gardner, Dornier, Oshioda, and some other people in the field... And there was one recurring theme that I kept coming across. And that theme was um, learning a language is different from learning other school subjects. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there it's, it's, you come across it, you know, everywhere in introductions and other things. So I'm, I'm reading, I'm looking at a quote from Dornier. You know, he's saying in one of his papers that this idea has been accepted by researchers all over the world, regardless of the actual learning situation they were working in. So mm. it's just unanimously accepted. And... This, the origin of this idea was Robert Gardner um, in the mid-50s. Uh, he was still a PhD student, and at the time he went to his supervisor, Lambert, and they were thinking about a research topic for Gardner, and Gardner said, I wonder if, if it, it's, it, makes, it makes it easier to learn a second language if you like these people versus if you don't like the people who are speaking that language. Hmm. And Lambert said, there it is, you know, this is your research topic. And he did his research on that area. So this idea came into uh, existence that learning a second language, uh, learning a language is not the same as learning, say, mathematics or learning some other, you know, school subject. Hmm. So that I came across this idea. It was also an interesting idea. It's fun. Then I kept reading the literature, and then I came across what came to be known as the modern language journal debate. Hmm. And this was a debate in in the journal, the modern language journal, in the early nineties, 
Gardner and Dornier and Rebecca Oxford and some other people were going back and forth about where motivation research should go. And one of the points in that debate and in the general atmosphere was that we need to catch up, air quotes, with advances in educational psychology mm. and in education and in other places, which also sounds an interesting idea. Why should we be isolated from other fields that are doing pretty much the same thing as we are doing? But then when you put the two things together, that language learning or language motivation is different from other school subjects. And then you say, we should look at what mathematicians, I mean, what um, uh, researchers of mathematics are doing and then see their theories. There is some sort of contradiction here hmm. because logically, if you think that we are different, we are unique, it's a special case, language learning is a special case, then you need to develop native theories mm. that can accommodate the uniqueness of language learning. It wouldn't make much sense to go into other fields and take their theories, you know, just, it's kind of odd, you know, there is some something that doesn't add up do you need to adapt these theories in the first place and then somehow fit them into language learning? Or why don't you develop your own theories based on your understanding of language learning? Why do you need to, to take this route? Hmm. So I started reading, digging up the literature. Or I started looking for research. Of course, the most direct way to to come to test the hypothesis empirically that language learning is different from other at the motivational level than other school subjects is to do a comparative research and there wasn't much comparative research there was just all these is taken for granted so i started reading the literature and I, then i was surprised to see a study by Gardner himself applying his model, the integrative model, into statistics. Mm. So the integrative mo model, just to go one step back to, to explain this, um, Gardner's theory is that if you like the people of the target language, if you like their culture, um, if you want to, I don't know, communicate with them and other things, then this type of attitude will increase your motivation and then this will increase you the chance of success in learning that language. So that's, that's a very simplified version of his model, mm -hmm. which makes sense. It's okay. There's no problem in it. Mm -hmm. But then the surprise, as I said, was that he applied his own model into learning statistics. And then he showed that the model fit in that field also. So what, what, do you, what, do you mean, what do you mean fit? The, the people wanted to be a part of the statistics community? 
Yes, so so he he basically adapted his questionnaire that he uses to to test his theory in language learning and administered it to to students of statistics. You know, do you like to to be with people who are expert in statistics and this and that? And then so the correlation between these responses and responses to motivation to learn statistics and then achievement in statistics and so the positive correlations that he expected based on his model that's to simplify the the idea so and it fit and he justified it also saying that well there are some similarities between language and statistics you learn new vocabulary in statistics there are affective reactions to statistics like anxiety etc etc so and for me i said where did the idea that language learning is different go? You know, it's kind of it's some contradiction here. And then this this paper was like, I don't know, the 80s or the 90s. I don't know. It was an old paper. But then there was another newer paper by one of his students, Peter McIntyre, testing the same model on learning music. Yeah, so the Gardner paper was 1993. Uh, okay. Lalonde, and Gardner is that the, and yes, then uh, yes. the McIntyre is uh, 2012. Yes, um, and then you, you can see the difference between these two papers. One applying the model in statistics, very hard and dry subject, a STEM subject, mm-hmm. and then McIntyre is applying it in the R in music, which is on the other side of the continuum. And both of them said, yes, the model works fine. And then there is some research by some other um, emerging researchers like Quint, Olga Baldwin, and Luke Fryer doing comparative research and also showing that the motivation is pretty much similar across different school subjects. Mm-hmm. So that gave me the idea of um, doing this study. That's, you know, long story, you know, quick, the idea. quick, uh, side note, Luke Fryer, um, he used to run the program at the school that I'm teaching at now. Um, so a lot of, I'm very familiar with a lot of the stuff that, um, that he did. Um, I guess another quick, quick note to the listeners, a lot of the citations in this paper, uh, a lot of these guests have been on this podcast. So uh, Kim Knowles, Citation 83, uh, Stephen Ryan, Citation 81, again, Peter McIntyre, Citation 51. Um, also, Dr. Um, Evans, um, I don't know if you listened to that episode, Ali, uh, Citation 85, he's an educational psychologist at the University of New South Wales, and we talked about his longitudinal, longitudinal study about identity and music. So... Um, a lot of the, a lot of it's interesting because he was studying the same sort of things and applying it to music, and he was actually citing a lot of Kim Knowles with uh, um, self determination theory, which he also mentioned in this paper. So there's a lot of intersecting themes that are that that go on. Um, in the, well, I guess you you study motivation, you know that better than anyone. Intersecting themes must um, keep you up at night. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so that's the that's the background. That's the overview. Um, so talk about uh, 
you know, planning this study and putting it together and uh, conducting the study? Yeah, so this idea came when I was still a PhD student at Nottingham, and I saw Phil, and we, you know, Phil was doing his PhD part time, so he came to the you know, to to campus occasionally. So we sat and we planned, you know, a bunch of studies together, including the replication paper that we talked about in a previous episode. And and in all these studies, you know, we didn't we didn't tell our supervisor about them. It was you know it was our own thing. Uh, we didn't uh, want to uh, because he we knew that he wasn't going to co-author the papers with us. We know his style, and so and what's we wanted it, what's, to do wait, to what's do his, our what's thing. his style? I what's the style? Uh, um, um, he, he usually is very picky in, in co-authoring, you know, because, you know, he doesn't have to, you know, if, if the paper is not impressive, then it will be very hard for him to agree to invest into that paper, especially considering his old age and, you know, he's, you know, about to retire and he has other things to do. So he's not really into, you know, let's do this study and then do that study. So it's, so, it's, so I'm just kind of getting your mindset. So knowing that he wouldn't be a co-author would discourage you from talking about an idea? Is that the only reason? Or is it just because you thought well, maybe he'd be against it at the time? Um, yeah, because um, we, w- we like to do our own thing independently. Mm-hmm. You know, Phil and I, and we didn't want to involve other people, especially since one of the papers was the replication of one of his studies. Right. So <laughs> yeah. we didn't want to. <laughs> uh, yeah. So now that, now that again, that that episode, Citation Fifty Three, where I talked to Phil Hiver, uh, we actually talked about that. You know, were there fears of replicating this study that was done by your supervisor? But in that in that conversation, he said, you know, he was kind of inspired by Zoltan, um, you know, tangentially, I guess, to to do these kind of things. Even though he didn't really tell him at the time, he thought that it was like he was motivated by Dornier, his personality. Um, so it's interesting. It's kind of a dichotomy what you're talking about. And on one hand, both of you are saying, okay, we don't really need to run this by him. But on the other hand, I guess his presence would motivate you to be independent, if that makes sense. I mean, yeah, I would love to collaborate with him again if he agrees. But, but you know, um, you know his age and everything, and he's not as active as you know, like twenty years ago or something. So it's kind of hard to to convince him to collaborate. Otherwise, you know, it would be great if we I collaborate with him again because I did collaborate with him once, and Phil did so also, and. Both of these papers are highly cited. One of, you know, the top cited papers in both my profile and his profile. Did you think that if you brought some of these ideas up to him, he would discourage you from doing them? Well, I mean, he might have an opinion. I don't know whether he would agree or disagree, but because we liked this idea, we didn't feel we needed approval from somebody. You like something, sense, yeah. you go and do it. 
you know, yeah. just, you know, you don't want to open doors to, you know, other stuff. Well, and that's, I mean, that's what it should be, right? You shouldn't have an advisor yeah. who would like stop you from, from doing something. So, um, okay. So you're, you're, you're thinking about, you know, doing the, you're, you're talking with Phil and what he would, you said he's, he's studying part-time. So I guess he's living in Korea still. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the reasons why we didn't have to go through our supervisor because we could clear the ethics from his Korean institution. Mm-hmm. So Nottingham doesn't have to be involved. Right. That makes sense. And, uh, you had a really large sample size, like over 600, right? Yeah, uh, the the idea, you know, as we were planning to collect the data, we were at AAAL, I'm not sure which year it was, and we saw some people there, including Peter McIntyre. So we talked with him about this idea. And... Our original plan was to use Gardner's model. Mm-hmm. But Peter and some of the other people said, why don't you use Zoltan's model? Because it hasn't been applied using that model. There has been research using Gardner's model. Why don't you do the other model also? We said, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do it. So, so that's the we, L2, we, L2 motivational self-system motivational framework. Self-system. So wh- yes. what's the, can you give us the broad strokes of that model? Yes. So that model uh, presents three main variables that can predict um, language learning. The ideal L2 self, which means, you know, what you want to do. The O2L2 self, which is what others want you to do, oh. and the your you know L2 the learning context and your attitudes about the learning situation. So these are the three uh, variables. My personal opinion is that this model is not very strong. Okay, uh, it doesn't answer many questions. It has many problems. If my supervisor is hearing now, sorry, you know, I just, you know, <laughs> I have to say it. Um, it's great. Yeah, it. and um, it, yeah, and um, one of the main problems, as you know, you know, coincidentally, Peter McIntyre himself has just written um, a chapter. On this very issue about why, you know, as I, you know, as I said, you know, the ideal self, the auto self, and as you know, the self itself is very complex, mm-hmm. very, very complex. And so people were unhappy with integrative motivation, integrativeness. So the solution is to use the self, which is even more complex. Right. Past self, future self. And, yeah. Yeah, and you have all these selves, you know, the crying self and the banana eating self <laughs> and all these selves from the literature, like madness. <laughs> the banana eating self. That's that's what I'm most yeah, at least. Yeah, so Peter wrote this this chapter about the fact that using the self to explain motivation 
is not really a good way to go forward. And, you know, to put it differently, it's actually one step backwards hmm. in the in motivation research, actually. And uh, so Peter wrote this chapter and incidentally, that chapter is appearing in a book dedicated to Zoltan Dornier, edited by myself. <laughs> dedicated. <laughs> yeah. So it's appearing, um, you know, this year, actually next month, it's appearing next month at Bloomsbury. What's the name of the book? The title of the book is Researching Language Learning Motivation, a concise guide, and it is edited by myself and Dr. Frozina Sabu. How do you have time to do all of this stuff? I mean, I just don't get uh, it. Three fun, hours a know? day doesn't seem like it's enough. It's fun. If you love what you what you do, then you don't have to work a day. Uh, I guess that means I don't love what I do because it always seems like work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like doing the podcast. I like talking to people about it. Uh, but when I actually have to do it, ooh, it's rough. It is rough. Um I mean, there, there, I get enjoyment out of it, but I don't, I do not love it like you. I have to admit, I love seeing other people succeed at it and do like high level work. And I'm in awe and admire. That's one of the reasons I like doing this podcast is to like talk, talk to people like yourself. But yeah, I mean, I've heard other people say the same thing. Like it doesn't feel like work. I really love doing it. I'd be reading about this stuff anyway. Um, yeah, I, I. Yeah, I, I'm I'm in awe of all of these projects because it's not just it's not just quantity. I mean, you're putting out like a lot of qual. I think I talked about this last time, but you're kind of in this good stride right now, where you're just pumping out a lot of quality work. Um, where some people would say, "Oh, you know, I don't I don't have so many citations, but if you really look, I got some really good ideas." I mean, you're kind of doing both: good ideas well-written papers, well-written chapters, editing books. It's crazy. It's, 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 uh, I mean, I mean, let, let me, let me say something off the side here. Now at the beginning of this podcast, you mentioned the Nobel prize as a joke. Now let's imagine. I wasn't for a joking. Second. I wasn't joking. I'm serious. <laughs> now, the, the idea, there is no Nobel Prize for linguistics or applied linguistics. The closest field for a Nobel Prize is economics. Okay, so it doesn't apply to, to our field. But what about, so, now, the, for, what for about the, the Alzheimer's, the Alzheimer's um, invention? <laughs> that, that's something, I don't know, that's something different. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, so go ahead. Yeah, so let's imagine for a second that we have a prestigious award like Nobel or some other award for applied linguists. And there's okay. no such award now? now? I mean, well, I'm not sure. There is a Distinguished Scholar Award at AAAL. There are some Best Book Awards. I'm not sure if there is some kind of competition, Nobel-like competition to see who is the one with the best um, discovery or something in applied linguistics. I'm not sure about this. So 
let's say that there is some something like this. There is a prestigious award. Now ask yourself, is the paper that you are currently working on a candidate for that award? Uh, no. <laughs> then why Far are you doing it. it? Why don't you go for something else? I'm not smart enough. <laughs> I mean, I mean, uh, oh, yeah. oh, sorry. I shouldn't be yeah. asking. I shouldn't be answering. I apologize. You're asking the greater audience. I'm. I shouldn't have interjected myself. Sorry. Ask the question again. I'll stay silent, and we'll let the listeners answer <laughs> yeah, in their so, own mind. Yeah. So, is the project or the research project that you are working on? a candidate, a possible candidate for that award. If not, why don't you look for something important? I know it's subjective. I know that different people have different opinions. But if you yourself know deep down that the project that you are spending one or two years on is not that important, why are you working on it? Right? That's a reasonable question. Now, I know also, not is it only subjective, but also research is cumulative. It's not like one big discovery at, at a time. It might happen, but it's um, less often than, than incremental um, accumulation of knowledge. But do you have this plan to build a line of research that could eventually lead you to be a candidate for an award like that. If not, why aren't you planning? These are reasonable questions. Do yeah, you agree with me? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, I was kind of answering tongue in cheek, but there's also the idea that some people, like for me, I have a really good idea, but I got sidetracked with COVID. And I, I ran up against a lot of walls with my advisors and saying, you know, this, this heart rate thing and, the, you know, and this, this hypothesis I want to test, I almost feel like I have to, the thing I really want to do, I'm, it's, it's funny, it's actually related to what you were saying. The thing that I really want to do is probably going to be done independent from my PhD at some point when I'm really kind of out on my own and I don't need to get, you know, approval from my Supervise because a lot of times people get into programs and you know they're guided by their supervisor and you know they're, they're working towards the PhD, which is going to help them get the job as a professor and so on and so forth. And I don't know if it's like other people, but personally, there's a research project I want to do, but it's just not going to fit in my PhD program right now. It was just going to be too complicated. Um, but when I'm out free and on my own, I think I'm going to pursue it. I don't know, does that make sense? Funnily enough, you know Dr. Ibrahim Zana, right? No, I don't. Dr. Zana Ibrahim, he he is a collab. He he is a graduate of Nottingham with us. He's working on DMCs along with Zoltan, Christine Muir, and some other people. So he he was with us at Nottingham, and we used to joke when we were PhD students that PhD is slavery. Hmm. You have to follow the instructions of your supervisor. Mm -hmm. Once you graduate, then you become free, just as you said, and then you can pursue what you feel are important. Yeah, you got a got a trial by fire. <laughs> if you can get through it, then you're at freedom, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, and actually, you know, Phil and I, we collaborate a lot, and we actually have one day a year where we discuss our strategic plan. Mm, I like it. Fancy name. And actually, we have slides, like, you know, 30 or 40, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 slides with plans and what projects will work and this and that and different things. And we have this meeting once a year to discuss plans for the next year. Yeah, I mean, it is, you know, I am motivated. There's this research track. I got I got down a good track and exciting and, and then just you know, barrier after barrier. And it, I think other people might empathize with that. You might have a good idea, but you're getting beaten down by the barriers for whatever they are. Um, but I hope I'm going to come back. I do think that my idea, it's not, it wouldn't be up for a Nobel prize or anything, but it would be, I would be proud of it. I, I definitely could say that if I was working on it three hours a day, it would go by fast. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, as I said, you know, what, what is important and what's, What's worth working on is subjective at the end of the day. We have to acknowledge this. But if you yourself believe that what you are working on is not important, then there are a lot of questions that you should ask yourself, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to have to be asking myself a lot of questions once this, once this episode's over. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, all right. So did we make it? did we make it through the paper? No, we didn't. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so after we we agreed on the plan, uh, we pre-registered our analyses. Love that. And pre-registration means you go to a specific website like the OSF, the Open Science Framework, or a website called As Predicted, and you go, you log in, make a free account, and create a project and there is a form that you fill in about how you are planning to analyze your data after you collect it. You have not collected your data yet. Okay. And you, there are some questions for you to, it's a form you fill in. You, you, I will use a p-value of 0 0.5. Uh, a 0.05, I will, you know, use this variable as a dependent variable. I will use that variable as an independent variable. I will use ANOVA. I will use t-test. I will use whatever. I will handle outliers in a specific way. I will check the reliability using this. And some basic questions about how you will analyze your data. But then you click Submit. And then it be, the project becomes frozen, and you yourself cannot edit it anymore. Yeah, I think we talked about this in the previous episode, and I think you got a you got a badge for it. And yes, some journals give badges, and uh, there are badges for for pre-registration. There are badges for open data and open instruments. Yes, yeah, so we pre-registered. You know, the, the idea of pre-registration is that so that you follow your plan and you don't change it when you don't get the results that you wanted. Yeah, I so almost for, feel like this should be required. I, I, I know, right? In, in in some other fields, it's becoming a requirement. So, for example, somebody might do a, a study and and the author might be hoping that there will be 
you know, um, this group will be, you know, will be significantly different from the other groups. So, but they don't have a significant difference. So they say, okay, let me subdivide the groups into extremes here and there, redo the analysis. And if it's not significant, okay, let me divide them into three groups and then do the analysis. Let me remove that outlier. I'm not sure about that. And then you do different, do the analysis different ways. Then bingo, you have something significant and you publish your paper. Mm. Now, in modern research methodology, this is considered a questionable research practice. And actually, in, at some university in the Netherlands, there was one case where it was considered actually a research misconduct. So it's not just questionable, it's officially a misconduct if you, if you do that. Well, yeah, and, so and the other, the other, the other side quickly is that for for people that do those sorts sorts of things, it makes you skeptical about everybody's paper, right? Yeah, I know. So it, those people yeah, that actually did if it wasn't pre-registered, right? Yeah, exactly. So if you have you know people that are out there doing it and you know it, I'm actually almost skeptical about about a lot of papers I read, except for yours, of course, that are you know you have that badge. <laughs> But aren't you sometimes when you go to a conference and you hear someone give a presentation, it just sounds a little bit too perfect. Like nothing went wrong. Yeah, really? I mean, Everything went exactly as planned. <laughs> really? Nothing. Yeah, yeah. This is it. Your hypothesis was perfect. It just, I just immediately think it's, I just don't believe it. It just, how can that be? Yeah. And that person so. could be doing it correctly. Right. So it's like, yeah, the people that are not doing it the right way kind of muddy the waters. Yeah, and the problem is that, you know, the the people who do these questionable practices will probably be the ones that eventually publish their papers in prestigious journals. Right. Right? Because they have the perfect results. So some researchers, you know, likened this to using steroids. Mm. So you use steroids illegal and then you win over everybody else. Well, yeah, and I don't understand why journals don't need to publish papers that have findings that didn't work out. Isn't that useful as well? Why do why do the why why do we just need to publish things that worked out? Like I feel like I could learn a lot about you know things that fell flat or didn't work. Um, you know, the currency of academia is citations, and journals are mindful of what papers will receive the most citations and which which papers will get the most citations and which not and if you present perfect sexy results then everybody will want to read that paper and cite it if you uh, present a paper saying that oh i did this and uh, you know there was nothing then which is of course wrong this will introduce publication bias which is a very big problem so, I, incidentally, I talked briefly about this particular point in my presentation in China. Uh, so, it's if you replicate a paper, for example. So, if you there is a paper, let's say, and you look at the result, the results look perfect, and you are skeptical about them. So, you do a replication. If you do get the same results, the journal editor might say, yeah, we know that guy published the paper two years ago, you know, what's new, you know? And if you don't get the same results, 
the editor and the reviewers might say, well, maybe it was you. Maybe you didn't follow the same study and the same procedures. Maybe there is something that you made, you did differently. Then you got different results. And so it's your problem again. Mm. So it's dilemma in, in doing replication research. So pre-registration will probably help alleviate some of these problems. Yeah, and you're kind of spearheading this. I don't really hear a lot of other people talking about it. Um, seems like you were kind of out ahead of it. When you started, you know, getting together with Phil and thinking about doing these types of things, were you worried that you these papers weren't going to be published? Or did you have confidence that they would? Um, well, you know, the strategy that we follow is that we don't do research piecemeal, as it were. Mm -hmm. We design a bunch of studies at once, and I take the lead uh, in, say, two or three papers, and he takes the lead in two or three papers, another member takes the lead of two or three papers. So if we have, so we are not in a way putting all our eggs in one basket. We, we don't have just one egg in that basket, and if you know, doesn't take that paper doesn't take off, you know, we spent years and nothing. Right. We have a bunch of papers, then we have a, a good likelihood that um, something at least will get published. Right. So, yeah. All right. Um, all right. Well, let's, uh, let's finish off the paper. I know you're a busy man. So we're coming up on an hour here. Um, what were your what were your uh, findings? Or your conclusions? Yeah, so we compared we collected data, we tested the ELTO motivational self-system on English as a second language in Korea, Chinese as a third language, and mathematics as a non-language subject. So English is a global language, Chinese in a not, is a non-global language, let's say. Mm -hmm. So there have been some arguments that English is also different from other languages because it's a global language. I like that part of the so paper, by the way. I did like that argument that you made. People should read that part of the paper for sure. And mathematics. And we did the analyses and we tried to imagine our... We did three separate analyses. So we, we analyzed the English data using the ELTO motivational self-system, and we imagined ourselves as researchers of English, and the results were okay, you know, they would support the model. Mm -hmm. And then we did the same analysis on Chinese data, and we imagined ourselves that we are Chinese language researchers, and the model was okay, and the results are fine. Then we did the analysis on mathematics, also, the results are pretty much the same. So it, there, yeah, there was some minor differences here and there, but wasn't like a qualitatively different uh, result in favor of English and perhaps Chinese over mathematics than a language subject. Mm. It wasn't like that. So our results did not support the idea that there is a fundamental difference between language learning and learning mathematics at the motivational level. I wonder how it would work if you expanded this project to, you know, study abroad programs. So learners studying abroad 
and the different subjects that they're studying, like, you know, the study in their major, you know, the language that they're studying of the, nat the native language or, or other things. I wonder if it would still, the model would still work for that as well. Because these are required subjects I mean, in a high school, right? Yes. So the idea is that do we need a different theory to explain language learning motivation than a theory that explains another school subject? Mm -hmm. Or can we go back to, say, Chomsky's metaphor, principles and parameters? So Chomsky had this idea that the different languages follow one set of principles that apply to all languages in the world, and the differences are related to the parameters of these principles. So it's not a fundamental difference between languages. You know, you may have the subject here and the subject there. You may have preposition before the word in, in Japanese. Maybe you have it afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have these differences, but it follows the same principles. Also, is there evidence that the motivation to learn a language cannot be explained by the motivation to learn mathematics? And that's an empirical question. And there isn't really much to support the idea that we need a separate theory for language learning and a separate theory to learn mathematics and a separate theory to learn history. And so it's just the motivation to learn. The only thing I disagree with my arguments coming from your paper is the idea about, you know, learning a second language. There's this idea of maybe subtraction as an adult um, or you know, look at it in a different way, assimilation. So for me, and it might be different depending on which culture, right? If I go and live in England or if I go and live in South Africa or even Germany, it's a little bit closer than Japan, right? So I, I have less motivation to study Japanese because I don't want to become Japanese. And it's hard to separate the language from the culture. Now, how you behave, how you how you speak, how you address people older than you, how do you use respectful words, like how you become overly polite, how you become indirect. It's against my personality. On the other hand, I'm actually motivated to study karate, like a martial arts in Japan, for some of the same reasons that you talk about in this paper. You know, I, I, you know, being around these people that are great at karate, like I want to be around them. Like it's it's motivating. It's cool to be around them. And I like learning Japanese through karate, but I have less of a motivation to assimilate or subtract from my identity. So there's got to be a difference. I mean, if we're talking about, yeah, curriculum in a high school, I think it's a different test than someone living abroad, don't you think? So, yeah, that's a possibility. And we actually tested this in our paper. And we thought that Maybe it's not the the identity. Maybe it may be the identity subtraction, not the identity addition. Mm -hmm. That you add another component to your identity subtraction. But our empirical results, unfortunately, did not support this idea. Wow! It's an empirical question. Um, if you have to go and test it empirically, and also remember that. Is it something intrinsic to the language or is it 
how you view it. So somebody else might view mathematics or statistics or another subject in the same way. So this thing will apply to them also. If this happens, then can we not have one, let's say, integrative theory or universal theory that can explain these different phenomena rather than separate mini theories each one explaining a different thing. You can have many theories, but in the end, you will have an umbrella theory that explains these things. Yeah, but do you really have to assimilate to acquire the skill of statistics? Do you have? Do you need to assimilate to learn a language? Yeah, Gardner himself. No, assimilate himself. to learn statistics or to learn mathematics. Do you have I mean, to you subtract to... your identity or subtract something from your personality to gain exactly. a skill? Exactly. That was our hypothesis. We, we thought that the most reasonable hypothesis is that there is no subtraction if you learn mathematics, right? Right. That was our hypothesis, but it, it, it wasn't borne out empirically. We were surprised. You know, there's nothing. Maybe there is something if you look harder, but we couldn't find anything. So, yeah, going back, Gardner himself said in one of his papers, you know, integrating into another culture never meant that, you know, in a, in a literal sense, you want to be part of these people. It's just, you know, a positive affection towards speakers of the language, basically. Mm. And not any real integration with them in the sense that you lose your first identity. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I have to, I have to, I mean, that's where it goes. You know, you, you have these ideas and you're, you're challenging them. Um, I think it's also going to, you know, spur on some other research projects as well. I could think of some other research projects that could come on the back of this. And I don't know if you guys already have some in the works, but um, it's exciting to read about and, and also just challenging preconceived notions and ideas that, you know, people just kind of take for granted. Like you said, I mean, I kind of took it for granted that motivations would be different to learn a language, especially studying abroad than something else. Now, the, the problem, the problem, you know, somebody might ask, so what's what's the importance of answering this question? The The answer is... Once you believe that language learning motivation is different from, say, mathematics learning motivation, then you will not need, you will not feel the need to read that literature, right? Why? Because you think it's different, and you will not feel the need to go publish with them and tell them about your results because you will say, oh, it's different. And that's actually what's happening here. Uh. We don't actually cite, if you go and read motivation literature, we don't actually go and cite the latest findings in educational psychology, for example. It's completely irrelevant to us, in a sense. It's, it's non-existent. And they don't come and read and cite our... It's, it's only occasionally. It's, it's not like, you know, we are in conversation with them. And this is the problem because of this mindset. Mm. All right. So in some ways, I mean, this can make it a lot easier for people. One less variable to worry about. Yeah. 
and then your goal of interdisciplinary research, you know, people coming together, you know, reaching out across fields. And I mean, yeah, talk about it in the paper, you know, less. less yeah, uh, hopefully, you know, this will 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 um, set up bridges between different disciplines so that people can sit with each other and talk and exchange ideas, which can be productive. Okay. Uh, wow. A lot to unpack in this conversation. Um, again, every time I have you on, I feel like I just keep, keep, keep talking to you for like three hours. Uh, the name of the paper is The Fundamental Difference Hypothesis, Expanding the Conversation in Language Learning Motivation. Anything else to add for today's conversation? Um, it was fun speaking to you, and I hope that anybody who reads that paper will enjoy it. And uh, I'll put some links in the show notes. And uh, again, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ali Al-Hori, for coming on Lost in Citations. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.